Hello and welcome to West Indies on 99.94 Cricket Every Day. My name is Mashal St. Patrick Hewitt, one half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And with me as ever is Santoki Nagilendron, the other half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. West Indies on 99.94 is your new home for West Indies cricket content and we'll be dropping into your podcast feed on YouTube or the 99.94 app several times every week. So rate, review, like, subscribe, share, all of that jazz. And thanks for joining Cricket's Conversation. Today on West Indies on 99.94, we're going to be looking at the 2022 Super 50. Santoki, take it away. Yeah, Mash, and while 99% of cricket fans around the world have been tuned into the T20 World Cup at glamorous venues such as the MCG and, you know, all the world stars, we've been dedicated to following the Super 50 over in Trinidad and Tobago and Antigua, following the live streams, taking part in the comments, watching it with the 17 other West Indian fans following the action. But it's an important tournament, obviously, with an ODI World Cup coming up next year. This is sort of an opportunity for players to make a claim to get into the ODI side with some strong performances. And um, I think it's fair to say it's been a mixed tournament so far. It's been very low scoring, very spin dominating, which we've come to expect from West Indian pitchers over the past few years. So we're here to sort of break down sort of the performances, standouts, and whether anyone has put their name forward to break into the West Indies ODI side. Now, I guess it's only right to have a look at the batting mash. Um, If we have a look at the top run scorers, Alec Afanes is currently the lead, well, he is the leading run scorer. Um, averaging 48, followed by Kayon Otley, Ke- Ke- uh, Hodge from the Windward Islands, Tevin Imlak of Guyana, and Sunil Ambris of the Windward Islands. Now, I guess, Mash, the first point to make is Windward Islands have three batsmen in that top five, Hodge, Ambris, and Athenes, but they haven't made the semi-finals. Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana have progressed ahead of them. So... What do you make? What do you make of that match? Do you just think, for, in terms of Windward Islands, let's let's talk about them first because it is unusual. Has their bowling just let them down this season? Yeah, I think <clears throat> if you look at the the, the Windward Islands uh, bowling attack in particular, it it was always going to be kind of the weak suit of, of of their particular lineup. And I think if we'll get onto the bowlers, but if you if you look at like the top five bowlers in the tournament, uh, the Windward Islands top bowler is is Kavem Hodge followed by Justin Graves and with the greatest respect to both. And Kevin Hodge is, is, is a certainly a useful all-rounder, but with the greatest respects um, to both, you wouldn't automatically say, right, those are strike bowlers. And I think if those two represent your top two bowlers within your side, somewhere, somehow within that side, someone's not doing their job. Because I would see, I see a Justin Graves and I see a Kevin Hodge as supplementary bowlers who pick up wickets i don't see them as your main wicket takers um who who would have been clearly identified before the tournament began so as as much as you can say well you know what three of the top five run scorers are women uh, are women islands batters which is great um they they haven't been backed up by their bowlers and in a group where they were always going to be battling it out with trinidad and tobago and guyana I, I would say that looking at the, 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 the TNT squad and the Harpy Eagle squad before the tournament, they always look far more balanced than, than the Wimwood Island squad um, did. So in many ways, 
yes, they've got some run scorers, but perhaps it's no surprise that they haven't made their way through to the semis. Yeah, and if we touch on um, Alec Gaffanes, obviously you've done a great interview with him over on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. He's had as much he's had two two centuries in the tournament, but he's also had a run of low scores as well. So there has been a bit of inconsistency. But Mash analysing his overall performances now, the Windwards have been eliminated, so his tournament is over. Based on the six games, do you think he's kind of put his name in the hat for a West Indies ODI call up? Good question, Santoki. If I was a betting man, I'd say no. And let me tell you why not. Because the the the, the ODI World Cup is potentially too soon. And what's, what's more worrying is we don't actually have any real ODI cricket prior to the World Cup qualifiers themselves. Yes, we go to South Africa, but it's like Tay Shandapal debuting in, in Australia. Do you really want to pick a promising batter and say, right, you're going to debut South Africa away? You want them to debut at home, ideally, in, in ideal circumstances. Now, obviously, in West Indies cricket, everything is always far from ideal. And yes, there are potential batting spots available. But, and I put this to you, Santoki. When I looked at the West, the last West Indies lineup that played in Old Jai Cricket versus New Zealand, the only spaces that I could see that were potentially available for any new batter was Brandon King's spot and Casey Carty's spot. But if you actually look at the run scorers, uh, Santoki, Brandon King's up there. Casey Carty has been good in the tournament as well. I can't remember, is Casey in the top five? Is he, or maybe in the top six, top seven? Brandon certainly is, right? So based on that, can we really say that somebody can um, can jump over them into a West Indies squad? And this is before we even consider people like Hetmeyer. Like, so I, I, I don't know, Santoki. Has he done enough for you? The thing is, I th- we, we mentioned it on a previous podcast because the tournament is such a, a short taking place in a short time frame you've essentially got five or six games in Athenaise's case to make a claim so you'd have to put in essentially big scores in all six of your innings now we've seen him hit two centuries but we've also seen him hit a duck so for me the sample isn't enough for him to warrant a, a call into the ODI so if there was another 50 over tournament or if there was another avenue for him to play 50 over cricket in the next few months and he did well then then you can say we have a large enough sample pool to sort of give him that international credit but at the moment it, as you said the team is relatively settled and you feel it probably wouldn't benefit him himself being thrown into the international scene I just feel he needs maybe another regional super 50 to sort of get into the to prove himself to make it into that ODI side um and if we look through the rest of the the rest of the top five, obviously Tevin Tevin Imluck is um, Guyana's current highest uh, run scorer. He's someone who we interviewed on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast as well. He's one to keep an eye out for. I don't necessarily think white ball is his strongest format. He he seems to be more of a red ball player, so that would be interesting as a wicket keeper in terms of the pressure he can put on Joshua De Silva because essentially. In the past two years, the Silver's only main competition has been the return of Shane Dalwich and whether he can get back. So Tevin Imlak also is another interesting name. But Mash, I guess the tournament has also been interesting because it's benefited from the unfortunate events of West Indies crashing out of the T20 World Cup. So the likes of Brandon King, Rothman Powell, Nicholas Poren have been able to feature in the Super 50 when they weren't planned to. Um, do you see a massive gap in quality in terms of the international players, white players who have returned to the Super 50 in terms of what they add and the difference between the how they play and the local players who don't necessarily have that experience? Well, my thing is that when an international player returns to West Indies duty, they have one job and one job only to me, and that is they've got to beat up the domestic level. Um, because otherwise... <laughs> 
<laughs> because otherwise, why are you investing these international colours in the first place? And and to be fair, Nicholas Puran's currently averaging 223. <laughs> At the time of recording, he's beating up the domestic level. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Nicholas Bradman Puran, are <laughs> So in, so in that regard, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? Uh, Brandon King, you know, pick Brandon King. Brandon King is averaging 43. Uh, Casey Carty is averaging 50. Shea Hope is averaging 50. Um, uh, Robin Powell is averaging 48, okay? And all of them have played five or six matches. So in fairness, there is a significant part of me which is looking at like the run scorers charts and saying, well, the best players at the international level have come back to the domestic level and put up the runs again. So it's not like they've done stuff where it's like, well, boy, we better drop them. And the ones who are in the ODI setup who haven't put up runs, that's because they're in Australia getting ready for the test series. So technically, the international players have done what they're supposed to do. If you look, we haven't looked at the bowling yet, but Romario Shepard has done what he's supposed to do with the ball. Shannon Gabriel is tearing it up like he's the like he's the greatest ODI bowler that's ever lived on the, on the, on the planet. Uh, Yannick Correa is tearing it up. So... It 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 fundamentally, Santoki, poses a question then. If our international players who struggle massively so to compete in modern Ojai cricket are beating up our domestic level, <laughs> what do we do next then, Santoki? Like, like what, what happens now then? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I think at the moment we kind of seen there is sort of it's a disproportion. We do see the quality of, as you said, Nicholas Puran averaging 223, which is because he hasn't been out in his five of his six innings. He's been not out. Nobody can get him out, which kind of shows the quality. But just in terms of, there seems to be a gap in, and disparity in the level below that, that, in terms of the players who you'd expect to sort of make and break into the West Indies side, just haven't shown that quality. And the pitches haven't helped. I think the pitches have been tough for batters. When I spoke to Tevin Imlark, he said it's, it's been very tough, but it's what you sort of expect from Trinidadian pitches. Now, We've talked about the batting. It's only right we take a break and when we come back, we'll look at which bowlers have stood out. There's a few surprising names on the top wicket taker list, so we're going to break it down for you after the break. I'm Daniel Norcross. And I'm Rory Dollard. And between us, we are England Cricket on 99.94. We'll be every week looking at the ups, the downs, the runners, the riders, the news and the views on all things English cricket. And believe you me, there are plenty of ups and downs. Join us, England Cricket, on 99.94. OK, we're back from the break, people. And uh, before Santolki goes into the bowlers, Santolki, I know we want to go into the bowlers, but I just want to pose one more thing about the batters before you take, before you take in the bowlers. Can we just quickly talk on the strike rates, though, Santolki? Because I feel like we've got to mention that. I feel like we've got to go into that. Because... As much as before the break, I spoke about the averages and the international players are doing their job. When you look at the strike rates now, and I'm just going to read some to you, Santoki, and I want to know what you make of it. So, Kjorn Otley is the second top run scorer. He's averaged 263 runs, an average of 66, strike rate 80. Gavem Hodge, third, 261 runs, average of 52, strike rate 62. Imlak, fourth. 248 runs, average of 50, strike rate 65. It's only when you get to Nicholas Puran, sixth on the list, with 223s, average of 223, average of 223, strike rate 119. 
Now, I'm not saying, Santoki, that every West Indian batter must bat at an average a strike rate of over 100. But it worries me somewhat, Santoki, that we have to get to our sixth top run scorer and it's our captain, it's an international player, to average over 100. And then the next player averaging over 100 after that is Rothman Powell, who's number 10, 190 runs, average of 48, strike rate 128. It's worrying, Santolki, that if those are our strike rates at the domestic level, if you go to the international level, then how we rotate and strike then, Santolki? Do you, do you see what I mean? So the same problems that already exist at the international level, essentially our strike rotation and finding the gaps. And I know you've already hinted at the, the, the nature of the pitches, but those strike rates that I've read out don't strike me as players that can necessarily go to the international level and pierce the gaps easily. Yeah, and there's a direct correlation. The Windward Islands have been the only side in one match against the combined campuses and colleges to score 300, and they literally hit exactly 300. Every other score has been below 300, which is, in the in 50-over game, especially at domestic level, you'd expect a few sides to be able to cross that 300 mark, and that's a problem we have at international level. So this is obviously a wider issue with West Indies cricket, that inability to raise the strike rate when needed. And it is concerning, as you said, that even the international players are sort of struggling to breach that 100 strike rate. So as much as you can blame the pitches, as Tevin Imlach said when we interviewed it, the players know what to expect from Trinidadian pitches. So it's not as if it's come as a massive, massive shock to them. It's just nobody's been able to adjust and play spin very well. And that's another issue that we have in the ODI side. So a lot of the issues that you can see in this domestic tournament already in the group stages are things which are applicable to us at international level in 50-over cricket. So I just don't see... Again, as with everything we've talked about in West Indies cricket, there's no short-term solution to this. There has to obviously be a massive overhaul and implementation of a plan to sort of allow players to be able to accelerate and be able to hit 120, 130 strike rate on a regular basis because... If we're, if we're struggling to make under over 300 on a domestic level, we're not going to be able to do it at the international level. And in international cricket, regardless of who you're playing, whether it be Ireland, Afghanistan, 300 is, is below par at the moment. You'd expect 320, 330 in an ODI to be reasonable totals. So if we can't even breach 300, it is a massive, massive concern for West Indian cricket. And this is something we'll have to keep an eye on for the semi-finals and finals to see if, if it, any team can get over 300 when it matters. Um, but Mash, let's let's talk about let's talk about the bowling because I'm going to have to let you come in on this one. A lot of people will be looking at the top wicket takers in the tournament. You know, we've had the likes of Jaden Seals. You know, we talked about Shannon Gabriel. Your bredgen, Dennis Dennis Bully from Jamaica, 35 year old, played seven List A games in his whole career up until now. Is storming the charts with 12 wickets. The slow the slow left arm spin is bamboozling batsmen across the region. What do, <laughs> what do you make of Bully topping the charts, Mash? What does this show about the, the sort of, not only the state of pitches, but the competition as a whole? <laughs> you know, we, we, yeah. we have to put respect on his name. Let's put some respect on his name. Because at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm always fond of the phrase of you can only beat what's in front of you, right? You can, you, like, if he's bowling to what he's bowling to, at the end of the day, he's taking the most wickets. Um, so big up Dennis, um, former JDF soldier alongside uh, Sheldon Cottrell. Um, I guess the question mark is this, and it's something we've raised before. So Rakeem Cornell, for example, top wicket taker in the four-day championship earlier this season, 
hasn't been selected for the test squad, whether that's fitness related or not, he hasn't been selected. If Dennis Bullai was to end the competition as a top wicket taker at the age of 35, do we just rule him out then and just say, well, it don't matter because you're 35 years old and your wickets on the domestic scene don't matter. I, I don't know where we stand on this, Antoki, because if it doesn't matter, sorry, if he's not selected, what is the point of the domestic competition uh, exactly? And I look at the top current, as we record in the top five wicket takers in this year's competition could all conceivably not end up in a West Indies old guy squad. So I know you're going to go for him. I'm just going to say the names now. Number one, Dennis Bulai. Number two, Kofi James. Number three, Gudakesh Moti. Moti, sorry. Number four, Kavem Hodge. Number five, Shannon Gabriel. As things currently stand, Santoki, even Moti wasn't in the last West Indies ODI team that played New Zealand. So say those five stay in the positions they're currently in, and that's how we end the tournament with those five as the top wicket takers, and then none of them get selected for the ODI team. What was the point of Super 50 then, Santoki? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very valid point. And I think the problem would be with um, Dennis Bullai would be, obviously, as a, as a left-arm spinner, Akil Hussain sort of got that incumbent spot in the West Indies ODI side. So he's essentially competing against that. And then you've got Moti, who has played for West Indies, but isn't making the ODI side because of Akil Hussain. So it leads to sort of a double-barreled question in terms of, what more would someone like a Dennis Bullard need to do to make the ODI side? If you're the leading wicket-taker, you've done essentially what's needed of you. You've, you've sort of passed the criteria to make the West Indies international side. And then also the transparency of the tournament. Are we saying essentially, no matter how many wickets you take, if you're of a certain age or if, if it's a certain style of bowling, you're still not going to make the international side? Which then leads to wider questions of, Essentially, is this a feeder tournament for West Indies cricket or do we just take it in and of itself as a regional tournament that will not have any direct correlation in terms of selection for the ODI side? Because realistically, Mash, we know obviously Dennis Bullard is not going to get a West Indies call up mm. anytime soon, no matter if he if he doubles his wickets um, for the remainder of the tournament. Just the, the nature of his age and sort of this being a one-off tournament, he's not going to get called up. Akil Hussain will keep his spot. So yeah, this leads to very valid points about sort of what are we saying about the domestic tournament? What is it? Is its purpose? Because its main purpose is to serve the West Indies international side. But if the top wicket takers, as you said, none of them will most likely get top five, will likely get a call up. Essentially, it's an existential question. What is the point of the tournament then? And this is something I guess we'll need to find out from Cricket West Indies or, you know, kind of what, what is the what is the criteria for making? What would you actually need to do if you're Dennis Bullard to make the West Indies? Would it just have to be a remarkable? Would he have to take thirty wickets across the games? So it's something we'll never know, and it's it's it is something that sort of hangs over the tournament. Now, Mash as well. We've also got another familiar name in that top five, Shannon Gabriel, who we mentioned on the last episode. So he's still in there tearing up. Where West Indies and the ODI set up sort of needing strike bowlers and those with pace. Do you think? Bearing in mind he's out of the test setup and not playing much Red Bull cricket, do you think there's a way in for Shannon Gabriel to make the ODI side as an outsider? So I'm I'm getting behind the get Shannon Gabriel in the ODI team campaign, right? I've decided <laughs> I've decided he's got to be picked, um, and I've written something about it which may or may not be out at uh, some point in the near future. But the reason why I'm getting behind Shannon Gabriel getting in the squad, Santoki, is he turns 35 um, early next year, I believe realistically, even if Shannon is back fit and back to his very best, and I know people are going to say, look at Stuart Broad, look at Jimmy Anderson, but realistically, 
given we've got star boy Jaden Seals on the on the come up, Jason is still about. Uh, Alzari Joseph has found his true self. Kimar Roach is still about. It's realistically, it's hard to see Shannon getting back into the test side unless there's injuries, right? But when there is squ- when there is so clearly uh, a need for another strike bowler in the ODI side, I don't see why in the immediacy of World Cup, you wouldn't turn to his experience. And this, so this is the this is the other end of the spectrum of what we're talking about. We just said that Dennis Bullay probably ain't getting a call-up because he's 35 years old. Whereas I am saying Shannon Gabriel possibly does get a call-up precisely because he is 35 years old, but more importantly, because of his international experience. West Indies desperately need somebody who can take the new ball with Alzari Joseph. They desperately need another quick who they can turn to as an enforcer and say, boy, nothing's really happening. Go crank it up to 90 miles an hour and just see if you can do something uh, and and get us a wicket. And if we're not going to persist with Shannon in tests anymore, then I wouldn't be against this idea of saying to him, right, listen, World Cup's on the horizon. We need you for the qualifiers. We're probably going to need you for the World Cup if we get there. Come, let's just go with your in. Let's go with your experience at that level, and you only need to bowl ten overs. So the risk of you breaking down and not making it through the day are limited. Well, but where do you stand? That would you take the risk, Santoki? I think bearing in mind he's not playing red ball cricket and he's not going to be in the test side um, for the foreseeable future as it stands. I think it probably is worth taking a risk just because we know his capabilities. We know what he can do. If he's purely focusing on white ball cricket, I think if he was part of the test setup and he had red ball commitments as well, you would say, no, there's no point in him sort of stretching over to white ball cricket. But if we're if if his only option is to dedicate himself to white ball cricket for now, I think he is worth the option. We know what he can do. Obviously, West Indies have tried with Kimar Roach earlier this year, bringing him into the um, white ball setup. So I see no difference from Shannon Gabriel. And I think he's sort of proven himself in this Super 50. If he can remain fit for the semi-finals and if Trinidad make the final um it would be it would be massive credit to him and he he probably is on the mind of selectors as that sort of enforcer option and and a senior player to have in the dressing room to sort of guide the younger bowlers such as a Jaden Seal so it'll be interesting the question mark remains but it will be interesting and something we wouldn't have predicted before the tournament started but Shannon Gabriel's name definitely is in the hat for West Indies recall from from my opinion um Mash we're gonna go for another break and when we're back we'll look at the highs and lows of the rest of Super 50. I'm Neil Manthorpe, one half of South Africa on 99.94 with Lungani Zama. We're covering the Rainbow Nation as it undergoes its biggest transition since readmission. We cover every part of the South African game on 99.94 and you can hear us several times a week where you find your podcasts or on YouTube. Okay, we're back, Mash. And I think one thing we need to talk about is um, the combined campuses and colleges. Now, on previous episodes, we've talked about essentially what is the purpose of the combined colleges and campuses? What purpose are they serving in this tournament? What is the remit? Is it is it to develop players? Who are you picking in the side? Now, they've obviously gone for an experienced captain in Dennis Ramdin. Unfortunately, of the top 20 run scorers in the Super 50 this year, Ramdin is the only one from CCC to make the list. They went winless in the group stages and their only points came from a draw against Trinidad and Tobago in which they maximised the rain break by taking 37 minutes to bowl three overs and save themselves by having rain landing just before the 20 over mark, which would match null and void. And so they got two points from that. It's safe to say, considering they won the tournament a few years ago under the stewardship of Carlos Braithwaite, it's fair to say 
as a team and as a unit, the CCC have disappointed this year, Mash. Yeah, most definitely. And um, I, it was the one squad, the CCC was the one squad in the tournament where I couldn't get any kind of intel prior to the tournament as to who was going to be selected, um, who, all now I couldn't even tell you who's coaching the CCC side. That's how bad it is. Um, so I had no intel on who was going to be selected. So I can only tell you what went through my head when I saw the squad named for CCC. Because I'll be honest, I like to think I like to think that I know a lot about West Indies cricket, right? But when I saw the list for CCC, I spent most of that list look, looking at going, who's that? And like doing research, going, no, who's that player? Um, and I just, like, I get the rationale of making Ramdin captain, totally get the rationale for that. But why, Santolki, did they pick a squad with that? With, I get they're trying to give some of these youngsters a chance, but when you look at the squad, sorry, I'm going around in circles here, Santolki, but it's just because I don't understand. When you look at the squad, you can't see any. With respect to some of the names in there, it looks like a squad of like club cricketers, some of them. And I just look at it and go, so where was the explanation from someone to just ex- to, to, to just rationalize for the fans? This is why this squad exists. I haven't seen anything written anywhere. I haven't read anything anywhere which can tell me what the rationale was behind behind the, the squad. And it, let me just call some of the averages, batting averages in the squad, Santelki. Obviously, Ramdin has the top average, right? 185 runs at 62, right? Um, then after that, you've got Kalicharan, six matches, average of 18. Rupchand, two matches, averages, average of 18. Uh, Bidassi, four matches, average of 17. Matthew Ford, who's a bowler, six matches, average of 17. Jonathan Drake's four matches, average of 15. Like, like what's going on? Like and I, and I'm not. Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming the players per se. You can only like, whoever's picked is picked. But but I, I just I don't know. Was there not an option to invite Canada? Was there not an option to invite USA? Was there not an option to pick some more established players alongside them? There surely was enough players dotted around the other territories to essentially make up another team. So let me pick someone from Guyana who didn't get a look in this year. Um, let me think of a name. Uh, I can't even think of uh, I'm, I, I, Let me just pick someone. Oh, Hemraj. Chandrapur Hemraj. He's, he's, not, he's not in the Guyana team. So, so was there not an option to say, go play for CCC? Like, I don't get it. Yeah, no, I think, I think there is confusion about sort of what is the, like we said, what is the CCC? What is the purpose of it? And what is their remit in the tournament? Why are they there? And there just seemed to be no sort of team unity or any sense of this being a team committed to a cause which was it was really strange it felt like Ramdin was essentially playing by himself at times just trying trying to save the team um getting bowled out for under 100 um and if you contrast that to the West Indies Academy obviously West Indies Academy have taken a few losses but they're a side who the players are all under 21 so they're you'd expect them to take losses but you're looking for performances and we've got that in the likes of Keegan Simmons the openers performed well Joshua James with the ball so the West Indies Academy have looked bright and they look like some a team who you know in five six years players could step up to the international level so at least there's a clear sort of philosophy behind the West Indies Academy we know why they're in the tournament CCC it just felt like they were muddling around and it does beg the question as you said 
why couldn't they just invite like a, a Bermuda or, or a Canada to take part in the side? Because you feel that it would have gotten better performances, not out of, only of, out of their team, but also the opposition. You just feel, especially when Trinidad, Guyana and Windwoods are playing CCC, you don't feel it's beneficial for even the opposition to take part against this quality. And it sort of has been a stain on the tournament, the CCC this year. So hopefully, if they are back in next year's tournament, we sort of get a clear cohesion as to why these players are in the squad and what their purpose is. So that has been a disappointment. But I guess, Mash, another another interesting topic before we sort of wrap up is obviously we've seen the likes of Sunil Narayan take part for Trinidad and Tobago. Now, he's someone this year, he hasn't been taking many wickets, but he's been restricting runs and he's been critical in Trinidad and Tobago making the semi-finals. Now, Sunil Narayan, as far, it's safe to say he's very unlikely or almost guaranteed to never play for West Indies again in the ODI format. Do you feel like Asuna Narayan being in the tournament is taking the spot of someone who could potentially make the West Indies side? Or do you, do you just think the tournament needs someone like a world-class player like Asuna Narayan? It benefits everyone around him either way. What's your sort of take of, of that case scenario? So I'm going to freely admit that I've changed my mind as the tournament has gone on. So prior to the tournament, my attitude was, what's Asuna Narayan doing there? Like, there's no points to this. Just free up the space for someone else who's younger in the in the TNT uh, domestic setup to get a goal. And then as the tournament's gone on, and I've seen that Sunil's economy rate for the tournament is like 2.6, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in my head, as the, as the competition's gone, I've gone, I've thought, well, you know what? If people, like, go back three, four years, and one of the biggest complaints that people had about some of our franchise players um, and vis-a-vis their commitment to West Indies was the complaint was always they don't come back and play the domestic tournaments. And I thought, well, you can't have your cake and eat it then because, okay, yes, Sunil may not play for West Indies again, but is there really a harm overall in Sunil Narayan playing in in our domestic competition? Because arguably, so whether that be the Guyanese batters, whether that be CCC, whether that be Windward Islands, who have predominantly faced him thus far, should they not be getting better by facing somebody the quality of Sunil Narayan? Now, I'm not saying they are getting better, but you can't get better if you don't face top-class quality. So I guess fundamentally what I'm saying is you can't on one hand say Sunil Narayan doesn't care about West Indies cricket, and then on the other hand say if Sunil Narayan cared about West Indies cricket, he'd come and play in our domestic competitions. I, so I think I've gone full circle to say it's acceptable if Sunil Narayan plays in our domestic competitions, so it allows our players to test themselves against players at the highest level, while subsequently also saying, but I don't want to play for the West Indies. I think, I think, Santoki, I'm more on the line of accepting it. Yeah, I think a good example would be Tej Narayan Chandapur, who's obviously he's flown out. He left the tournament early to fly out with the West Indies side to Australia, but he's someone who was opening for a guy and I had a good strike rate. When it came against uh, Trinidad Tobago, Narayan completely bamboozled him, clean bowled him. He essentially fell on the floor trying to play the shot. But that would be a good experience for a young player like Tej Narayan Chandapur because you can see this is what the level is like. This is what a world-class spinner is like. And that can only put him in better stead in the future in terms of white ball cricket. So I agree. I think we need to shift our mentality to of thinking, oh, it's a disappointment. Sunil Narayan's not going to play for West Indies after this or he's no, he's turned his back on West Indies. Um, so there's no point in him being in the tournament. To looking at the view of 
we've got a world class player in the in the tournament. He can only raise the levels and the quality of the tournament and just take it in and of itself. I think it's been known for a long time Narayan's not going to play ODI cricket for West Indies, but we should essentially, as a region, be happy that we have got someone of his quality willing to commit to the domestic tournament, and it can only benefit those players that are featuring. Now, Mash, before we wrap up, is there anyone else sort of who's caught your eye in the Super Fifty? Anyone else who you want to sort of shout out? For their performances in the tournament yeah if i if i go i guess if it's possible i'll try and go team by team but some teams there's yeah. no ones so like ccc <laughs> but no 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 that's harsh i'm gonna go team by team so for the west Indies academy uh and for those who are listening to this if you've not been not been paying full attention to super 50 go and look up some of the highlights on the windy's cricket youtube page so west Indies academy kevin wickham the barbadian uh top order bats has impressed me with bat and ball um, Keegan Simmons um, for West Indies Academy has looked solid at the top. Um, Joshua James, who I thought would be the standout, has proven to be the standout with the ball um, and a bit with the bat, uh, the, the the tall pacer from Trinidad. For Guyana, we, we didn't speak about him earlier on, but I do think we've probably got to say that Romario Shepard has come back to the domestic level and beat up on the domestic level, which is good for Romario because obviously he was left out of the T20 squad uh, he's been getting cuss outs for going for licks. All he can do in this scenario is come back to domestic cricket and put up numbers to demand to get reselected again. Um, for Barbados, um, I guess, I guess Shea Hope has been consistent, but then would you expect anything less um, from from him? For Jamaica, um, I, well. Dennis Bullite. <laughs> Dennis Bullite. But actually, I've I've enjoyed watching Brandon King at the top of the order for Jamaica. And I'm wondering, they've played him as an opener throughout the whole tournament. Does that potentially suggest then that we're now looking at Brandon King as an opener in both T20 and uh, 50 over cricket? Who have I left out? TNT, well, Nicholas Puran, we did an episode, Santoki, where we said, should Puran take a rest after that World Cup? Well, actually, he's not. He's come back to Super 50 and found form. Maybe that's the best thing then for West Indies cricket going forward. And then lastly, CCC, despite us saying what's their purpose, I do think Matthew Ford, the Bayesian uh, or Barbadian, has been very good with the ball, seven wickets at 28. So each team has had at least one standout player who can say, you know what, worth, worth keeping an eye on them. Wait, Dominica might come for you, Mash. You didn't mention the Windward Islands. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't mention Leeward. Sorry, there's eight teams. So. <laughs> so, typical typical sorry, Jamaican, people, you know, big oh. island, you know, trying to leave out the small islands. <laughs> That's how you know there's a small island bias. Sorry, so Windward, Island, Windward Islands, um, Kevin Hodge and uh, Alec Athanase. And yeah. actually, we, again, we didn't talk about him too much, but Sunil Ambris has been mm. gone for a while for yeah. reasons that I don't think I'm allowed to mention. But um, he's back and back in the runs. And he's somebody who's got an, a significant old guy career behind him. Um, and then for the Leewards, what, Jimbo? Jimbo, um, Devon Thomas before he left, Casey Carty um, has been has been solid in the middle. Kofi James so, with the ball as well. Yeah, yeah, Kofi James, of course, with the ball. So actually, Santoki, having said all that, I leave you then to answer the key question before we wrap. We, we we said, well, we don't actually know who the final four is. We know that it's definitely TNT and Guyana and Leeward Islands and one of Jamaica or Barbados. Who's going to win Super 50, Santoli? You know what? It's a tricky one because the teams have chopped and changed so much. Obviously, we've had 
the unexpected arrival of the white ball T20 players, but then we've also had players leave for the test tournament. So, for instance, Guyana have lost out on the Tejanwan Chandipal opening. Um, Barbados have lost out on Austin Chase and Craig Brathwaite. So the teams have changed. The dynamics have changed so much halfway through the tournament that it is hard to predict. But you know what? I'm going to have to go Trinidad and Tobago. I think they'll defend... If they're probably favourites to defend their tournament title, but because of the quality, Narayan and Pura and their big game players... Um, they've they've played at finals in IPL across across the world, big games. So they know what to do in these situations. I think Guyana. If we get to the final, we have too much of a complex about losing finals, whether it be in CPL or Super Fifty. But I wouldn't rule out Jamaica doing what they've done in CPL, sneaking through into the semi-finals and then <laughs> just pulling it out in the clutch. So for me, it's it's good because the nature of the teams losing players and gaining players has added an unpredictability to things. So any of the four teams, Leeward Islands could spring a surprise. So at this point, I'd say any of the four teams could win it. But if I had to pick someone, it's got to be the, the gigantic uh, Trinidad and Tobago superstars. Luckily, I won't give an answer as yet. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Santoki, for pinning the, 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 the West Indies on 99.94 uh, uh, prediction to the mass. But uh, Santoki, that's goodbye from me. Is it goodbye from you? Yes, goodbye for me. And we'll be back with more episodes and we'll be sure to review the semi-finals and finals of the Super 50 in the coming day. So stay locked for that. And as always, like, comment, subscribe, 99.94 DM. Find us at Carib Cricket on Instagram, Twitter. You know, message us about this episode. If there's any players we missed out, anything you've been disappointed about Super 50 or want to talk about West Indies cricket, just hit us up and we'll be feel free to discuss it with you and have debates as always. So, Mash, that's it from us and we'll be back very soon. Stay locked, everyone. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!